You're listening to Radio Primavera Sound, proudly presented by Cupra. Welcome to Line Noise. On this week's show, I spoke to Danny Briatet, who is one of three members of uh, London's much-missed Renegade Soundwave, um, a hugely influential electronic music group who combined punk, electro, dub, indie, hip-hop and industrial into a splendidly strange mixture that blew up raves, ignited college radio in the US, influenced the prodigy and even translated into chart hits. You've almost certainly heard their best-known song, The Phantom, uh, but each one of their four albums is very, very much worth your while. So, I mean, if you, if you don't mind, I wanted to sort of go back a bit to the, you know, very beginning and basically ask, how did Renegade Soundwave come together? Um, well, how it came together, I, I knew Gary and Carl kind of separately. Like, like Carl came from sort of the same part of London as me. And we, we had, like, we were just sort of, just grew up in the same area, basically. And then um, Gary I knew because um, I was in another band with him before, this kind of quite murky 4AD band. Um, and then me and Gary left that. And uh, I was doing bits with Carl and I was doing bits with Gary separately, but then eventually the, kind of the three of us came together and started writing music. So that, that, that's basically how that came about. So what were you listening to at, at the time? This was 1986, right? Yeah, we were around about then. I mean, for me, the, the big thing was reggae, you know, and I was always big into reggae. And um, I was going to the sound systems a lot, you know, and stuff like that, buying a lot of records, hanging around in, in reggae shops and stuff like that, you know. And uh, there was that. And then I was into hip-hop from quite early on. I used to go to New York. I don't know, from about 1980 when I was really young, we started going to New York and hanging out as well. And um, I got into hip-hop quite quite early on. Uh, and then I went back to the States a lot and I was going to hip-hop clubs and meeting people and, and stuff like that. So there was all of that. And then um, then all the other stuff that you'd grown up with, you know, like Bowie and, and things like that and sort of pop stuff and... Uh, like funk, electronic funk, electro. We we listen to everything, you know. I, I kind of um, I spent a lot of time in Berlin as well in the early eighties. Um, you know, when it was still behind the Iron Curtain and stuff, and um, the kind of uh, like embryonic electronic music that was coming out of Berlin, very very simple um, electronic music um, that became really influential, you know. Late, later on so all of these different things loads of sound film soundtracks morricone you know um john barry all sorts of stuff why were you traveling so much if you don't mind me asking was it a job or was it just you no know i just had it in the blood really i mean i i just um as soon as i was old enough i started going places and just to check places out really you know before i was in a band before I was even DJing, really, I was going to places. I mean, I remember hitchhiking to Berlin, you know, when I was about 19, which is like, if my son wants to do that now, I've got an 18 year old sitting next door. I well, I, you know, I just wish him the best, you know, but um, yeah, I just always wanted to check out new places and, and new things, not really 
so much in the UK. I've never really, outside of London, I've not really, you know, it doesn't do so much for me. But I'd always go, go to Amsterdam, go to Berlin, go to New York, wherever there was something that was, um, you know, interesting going on. And the, the thing of it then, when, when you were young, you just fall into scenes. You know, I'd always go places and I'd meet people and just get chatting to people in, in a bar or a club or something. And those people would turn out to be, like, really important later on, you know, like, and, and they would be, like, really influential people. But when I met them, they were just like me, you know, just like kind of people just just hanging out and learning and experiencing stuff. Um, and I kept in touch with those people, well, up until now, really. Because, I mean, one of the things I really loved about Renegade Soundwave was like basically you had a really unique sound. Do you think that came from basically your your backgrounds of just listening to lots of different things? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And just it kind of, I don't know, by the time we got in the studio for the first time, we'd had years of just like collecting records, traveling, listening to stuff. So it all just kind of poured out, you know, and the, the thing with, like say London, I grew up in West London and at the time I was growing up, there was all of these different scenes and all you had like the soul boys, you had the punks, you had the neuromantics, you had the, the reggae crew, you had all of these different things. And you'd be friends with people from all of those different scenes, do you know what I mean? So you go around their houses when you were like really young, you know, and like you go around to like a Jamaican mate's house and you'd be listening to reggae or you go around someone else's house and they'd be playing like soul and jazz funk or whatever and you know that's how, how it kind of was and everything if you if you were open-minded and you let yourself be take it all in there was so much stuff there you know I mean like I knew black kids that knew about the buzzcocks and the dams and stuff like that they might not go and see them but because they might sit next to somebody in school who was into punk and they'd go around his house and they'd hear his records and vice versa. And I was kind of someone who was, I was interested in everything. You know, I didn't like everything, but I was checking out everything. So all of that stuff was inside you, you know, and if you keep an open mind, eventually it'll all just get mixed up in your head and then you just spit it back out as as records, you know. That's basically what we did, you know. And we had a massive kind of um, source of samples and source of inspiration from all of these these different genres and these different kind of scenes you know your records were big on the rave scene were you ravers yourselves yeah well i was but i wouldn't say a, like a raver as a tag because when you think of that you think about someone in a big baggy smiley face shirt and a bandana or something i was never like that but the, the thing of it was is i was going out for quite a few years before that you know so i experienced the original ecstasy thing in new york in in like about 85, 86, you know, when it was a very small thing. And I was going to clubs in New York quite a lot. I was going to clubs here. I was DJing here and I was doing warehouse parties here, free house, you know. So we were playing like funk and reggae, hip hop, bits of alternative music, all kinds of outlaw music, really, and kind of abandoned warehouses in Shoreditch and King's Cross and places like that. So I was already out there. And then the rave thing came along and you just kind of thought well, it's another thing to check out. So you get into it, met more people, went to a lot of things. And I don't think we really necessarily 
designed any records for the rave scene as such. We just made the music that we made, you know, and some of it was taken up by that movement and some of it wasn't, you know. Some of it was played in the raves. Some of it was played when people were coming down when they got home. They would play the, the slower stuff on in dub, but it was more for, like, coming down after, like, a night or a weekend, you know, out and about sort of raving and stuff, you know. So, I mean, something like The Phantom, which was obviously very, very big, um, in yeah. raves and I've seen it uh, there's a Fabio and Groove Rider compilation where they play their sort of earliest influences and it's on there and lots of people I mean what or Ozone Breakdown for example like yeah. what do you think why did these appeal to people going to raves I don't know it just sort of caught the it just caught their kind of I don't know they were just caught up in it I mean it was very different to everything else you know it wasn't really you know, when we did Ozone Breakdown, I'll be honest with you, Phantom and Ozone Breakdown, I did the bones of it in one session on my own. You know, when we were doing our first album, there was the main studio where we were we were working and the three of us were bashing away and, and there with Flood, the producer, and um, doing the first album. But I used to get bored and there was a little programming room next door. And one night I just went in there and I did the bass line and the beats for the Phantom and I was on breakdown in one sitting. And it was just like, you get those times where, you know, something just flows through you, some kind of energy, some spirit flows through you. And if you can capture that and bottle it, that that's really what it's all about, you know? And I think um, then, then I developed those two tracks with Carl, but the, but, but the, the genesis of it was from that, that one, that one night. And Ozone Breakdown, yeah, I was imagining hearing that in the race. The Phantom, we just did. And we kind of thought, yeah, this this might work in that context. But we didn't sit down and think, oh, let's make a record so that so-and-so can play it or anything like that. And then it kind of went out to Pirate Radio. And Pirate Radio was such an important thing then, you know. There, there was no... All of that stuff now that you've got wasn't there. You really just had like guys in a tower block with a rape an aerial on the roof playing the tunes that they liked, you know. And um I remember one day I came out of my flat in, in Notting Hill where I lived and I heard it blasting out of the radio in someone's car. And I just thought, oh, something's going on here, you know. And then I knew kind of the guys that ran quite a few of the dance shops in the West End, you know. And I'd go in there and, and they were get, we were getting them white labels and stuff before it's properly pressed up. We we're going, Danny, get us more. This is going to blow up. And I remember when I think it was City Sounds or one of those shops, and I was in there and they said, No, Danny, no, this one, this one is gonna, this one's gonna go clear. We know when something's gonna go. And it and it just kind of did. It didn't have any promotion at all, you know, other than that. It just was like we gave copies to people, people bought it in black market in in Grove and all those kind of shops, you know, and um, Eastern Block in Manchester was important and, and, and those kind of places. And, um, yeah, it just kind of spread on its own. It just had, took on a life of its own. How come you uh, decided to sample The Clash on the record? Well, The Clash was something that we'd grown up with. This, you know, to me, that was like... You know, I was younger than the punks in the punk bands and all that. I was at school, you know, when all of that was going on. But it was like, for me, growing up in West London, the Clash were like, you know, all the bands that were around prior to that, even the Pistols to a degree, it wasn't really for me. But when the Clash came out, it was that kind of like swagger and the lyrics 
lyrics, you know, if it, they had lyrics like, you know, career opportunities and white riot. And for a young kid growing up, and there was the sound of the West Way and the way they dressed, the way they spoke, the way the live shows were, it was just such an important sort of part of growing up. And I don't know, Carl, we had that, we'd done it. We'd done the Phantom and Carl said, you know what? I think we should put a bit of white riot on it. And it just sounded like really kind of like mental idea, you know, but once it was in there, it seemed to work with the energy of everything else. And I think that's something else people picked up on, even if they didn't really know what it was. I think a lot of people thought it was just like, ah, blah, blah, blah. they didn't really know what it was, you know. And then later on, they found out that it was. I actually um, I gave a copy to um, Paul Simonon from The Clash, but I was at a party and um, he happened to be sitting next to me at a table and I had a white label on me, you know, we just pressed them up and we'd sampled it. We didn't ask permission for anything and I and I, I didn't know Paul. I, I know him now, but I didn't know him then. And um, I was just a kid, you know, I said, Paul, listen, um, I've got this white label for you. And look, don't take offence, but we sampled White Riot on it, but we've sort of done it with respect, you know, and we really kind of like, it really mean a lot to me if you apply it and let us know if you think it's if it's all right or not. So he played it, he took it, and then I saw him again, like by chance, like the, the following week or something, and I said, did you did you play the record, you know? He went, yeah, yeah, I played it, it's all right, yeah, you, you, you can use it. So we're like, okay, wicked. And then, funnily enough, very shortly after that, Norman Cook sampled the bass line for Guns of Brixton for whatever that big tune was that he had where he used the SOS band vocal and all that. What big gets to be. Yes, right? So the Clash sued him because he didn't ask them, right? And then I remember hearing Paul Simonon on the radio just when all that was going on. And um, whoever it was that was interviewing him said, so... Are you against sampling then? Are the clash against sampling? Are you against sampling? And Paul went, um, well, no, not necessarily. It depends how it's done. You know, it was a band called Renegade Soundwave, and they sampled us, but they came up to me and gave me a copy of the record, and they did it very respectfully. So we didn't even charge them. We let them use it. Whereas Norman Cook, he just took the piss. So we we, we sued him, you know. So it was like, but it, was a, it was a nice story. And for, for like, it was like, kind of come in a full circle for me because I've grown up with that music, idolising The Clash. Then they, they let us sample the record. And then Mick Jones came up to me at a rave and he went, um, oh, you, you know, you Danny? And I'm like, yeah. And you're oh, I really like your music. And I was like, bloody, I didn't really know what to say. Do you know what I mean? And it was Mick Jones. And then later on, we became friends. I mean, I'm sort of, mate, I became friends with all the BAD crew and, and then they let us turn into Dread Zone and, like I'm, I'm kind of close friends with a couple of them and um you know it was all that kind of west london circle you know but um yeah that yeah that, that's that's it basically yeah with the white riot how important i mean you used quite a lot of samples in your music it felt it was loads, yeah how important was like the sampler for what you did made my life you know full stop you know i mean prior to that i was a drummer yeah, and I, and I messed around with keyboards and stuff. I wasn't a brilliant drummer, but I had a lot of energy and I used to sort of like, you know, even when I was a kid, when I was still living at home, when I was in my like early to mid-teens, I had like a drum kit and a reel-to-reel tape machine and I used to just play beats and then record bits of Apocalypse Now over the top and, and stuff like that and, and sort of like, and, you know, that that's that. But then 
the sampler came out. And I remember Carl saying to me, Danny, there's this thing they brought out and you, and you can like take a bit of any record and you can loop it. So it goes round and round and round and you can add things and stuff. And we're like, well, what's this? You know, because at the time, prior to the S900 coming out, there was only people like Trevor Horn, really, that had access to had the Synclavier and they had these hugely expensive things that cost 40 grand and stuff, you know, um, that you'd, you'd never have access to, you know. But then the sampler came out and it, was, it wasn't cheap, but you could you could get one, you know. So we got samplers and we got the basic um the basic uh, sequences at the time, the little um little Ataris, which were a nightmare that used to crash all the time, they only have four tracks. But you know, all of a sudden our whole record collection was there, you know. And I was a DJ anyway, I had a big record collection anyway. And um so all of a sudden you could sample all of this stuff that I was telling you about before, all the stuff that you liked, you could sample it and you could layer it. And you can make tunes out of it. I mean, we did our own basses. You know, we programmed our own drums. We played bits of keyboards. It wasn't all samples, but the samples was the integral part of it, you know, and it's a real art form, you know, and, and make putting things together from completely disparate sources that should not, shouldn't really sit together, but somewhere in the recesses of your mind, you think that they can. And, you know, I remember we worked with certain engineers in the early days. They were like, no, nah, that's never going to work. We're like, well, we're going to try it. And we do it, and it'll work. And I'll be going, bloody hell, I could never see that working. So, okay, so you just do your thing and leave us to do to do our thing, you know. And and that's what it was all about, you know, um, taking chances and not being scared. We didn't get permission for anything. We sampled so much. Well, apart from that Clash one, we sampled so much stuff. And And at the beginning... People didn't know what sampling was. So if they heard something, it could be from a Led Zeppelin record, but they thought you played it. They, did, they didn't know what it was sampled, you know. And we used to mash them up and chop them around and do different things with them and stuff, you know. But um, for sort of people like us, it was, um, it was kind of liberating, you know. It was a liberating um, thing that, that came into play, and, and we made the most of it. But they were very, very rudimentary and uh, the, you, know, you could only sample like a few seconds, you know, so you had to sample something, then record it, trying somehow to get it to sync. There was no real, the time stretch was really bad. You had to chop everything up into its individual notes and spread it across a keyboard and replay it or change it around. And it wasn't easy. And, and like the screen on the S900 was a little slot like this, that li literally like a centimeter. And you had to strain at this bloody thing, trying to, trying to program it, you know, it's not like now you can have a giant screen with logic and you just sit back and it's like, well, you know, this was very, it was hard work. It really was painstaking work. And, you know, people used to turn around at the time and go, it's not proper music because you sampled it, but it was, it was, it was just a different, different way of, of, of making music. You know, it's kind of like, you know, you can have a guitar and you put it in someone's hands and that someone can be Jimi Hendrix and do something brilliant. You can put it in someone else's hands. All he's going to do is try and copy Jimi Hendrix. You know, it's kind of like all of these things are just vehicles for, for creativity. They're all just tools, be they real instruments, electronics, whatever, you know. Was it always your idea as a band to make albums? Because, I mean, you you know, your first album came out in 1989, um, which yeah. is early on. Did you always want to get to that point? Yeah, 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 for sure, yeah. I mean... But yeah, yeah, we definitely did. And it kind of gives you more 
sort of flexibility, I suppose. You know, in, in those days, you really had to think about albums as well. You know, I mean, the first album was like an outpouring. Then in dub was kind of bits left over from that and then reworkings of things from that. And that was the fun part, really, you know, and I think that kind of showed it was very kind of, very open. It was very much kind of of its time without being intended to be. It just just kind of was, you know, it just, just dropped at the right time, you know. And I think it's still... Um, I think it's still a, a well-regarded record, you know, gen generally, you know. You got into the UK Top 40 with probably a robbery, 38, yeah. I believe. Um, yeah. Were you, did you ever feel like kind of pop stars in any way? No, no, but, you know, when you're young, you kind of, um, all of a sudden you find yourself going from having no money and trying to bunk into places or or doing illegal warehouse parties or not on you know living sort of like from kind of almost from week to week or month to month to all of a sudden having more money but not only just having more money you're getting ferried around in in taxis and stuff and you're kind of like like before that we didn't go in cabs and stuff you know we hardly ever hardly ever been in a in a taxi before then do you know what I mean it's like all of a sudden you're getting people picking you up from the airport with signs on your name and you're, you're flying all around the place and like you're, you're doing like loads of interviews and and you've got people sort of uh they want to listen to what you've got to say you can't help being affected by it especially when you're young you know you, you're kind of um we probably were a bit cocky you know in the beginning i, I mean i can't pretend that we weren't i mean we were and i guess if i'm honest you know i mean we had like Five, we had five top five Billboard dance records on the trot in the States, you know. And those kind of things don't really get noticed here, but over there they they did, you know. And when we go to the States, it was like we were kind of pop stars in a way, do you know what I mean? And and you kind of, not so much here. Here it was just like I had the same mates I always had. I lived in the same flat in the same part of London. I bump into the same people, and I, I don't think I really ever gave it the big one, but when you were on the road and when you're abroad and stuff, you know, you did, you did, you couldn't help it. You know, someone's picking you up from your, from a flight with with your name on a thing, taking you to a hotel. When you get to the hotel, there's a bunch of journalists waiting to hear what you got to say. Then you get taken out for dinner. Then you go and do a show. Then maybe you DJ afterwards. Then you've got loads of people there. And, you know, yeah, you, you, you feel, you know, you, you can't pretend it's not a nice feeling. It, it, it definitely is, you know. And um, I think we were a little bit, we had a really bad reputation you know, for being very difficult and very, very hard to, to get on with. I think if you got to know us well, it, it, you know, people wouldn't think it was like that. But we, we did we did have a bit of a, a rep in, in the early days. Was there one moment of sort of real madness in, in the States or anything like that when you're like, Jesus Christ, what's happening? I had loads of madness in the States. I mean, I had place times when I just thought, I don't know how I even lived to the next day. You know, I mean, I remember going out in Detroit once with a bunch of lunatics, redneck kind of lunatic, like, I don't know what they were, if they were crack dealers or they were gun dealers or whatever they were. But I mean, getting in a car with people three in the morning, you don't know where you're going, then ending up in some hood somewhere in someone's house, you don't know where you are, how you're going to get back, no mobile phones, no nothing, people putting guns on the table and stuff like that. And you just, all of a sudden you think, 
oh, bloody hell, what am I doing here? You know, there, <laughs> there was quite a lot of moments like that. And just it was always all right. It was all good in the end, you know, but yeah. You're still here. Still here, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, in 1994, you released How You Doing, which has my, my favourite song of yours, which is Positive ID. Okay. Um, how was that album to make? Bad. Right? Bad. Yeah, it was a horrible experience. It was, it, out of all of it, that was probably the worst. Carl had left, and I sort of considered just going off and doing my own thing, but I thought I'd started writing music with Gary, and I thought, all right, let's just see this through and see where it goes, and I'm thinking three months, but it took much, much longer. And during the course of it, we kind of grew to not like each other very much, you know, and we spent a lot of time in the studio, too much money in the studio, it all took too long. There was too much flapping around. It wasn't like boom, 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 like like the previous records have been. It was much more kind of like, much more involved. Um, there was a lot more money in the, in the game in those days. So you could sort of, you mess around in studios far far too much, you know, when you, you, you than you should have been. So, yeah, we we had we we came out of that not really liking each other anymore, and you, you know, it just um, yeah, it, it wasn't it wasn't a nice process. There's some good music on there, but of all the albums, it's probably my least favorite. But there are some good tracks on there. I mean, Positive ID is good. Blast them out, Renegade Soundwave. How you doing? There, there. I just don't really think of that album very often. But there are, if I think about it, there's good music on there. But it just took too long, and and it was just, it just, just wasn't really, really that um, pleasant. And you split in 1995. I was going to ask what happened, but I presume after that, you know, after the unpleasant experience of recording the album, you just called it time, right? Well, we didn't. No, we <laughs> we kind of went on the road. You know, oh, we sort of like. We 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 didn't do proper gigs with, with before that. We we kind of did and we didn't, but we do sort of like it'd be more like we go somewhere and I DJ or AJ or DJ or something like that. We might do. We did a few gigs, a few gigs, a few kind of really mad gigs. We did. Um, we did a really mad one in Berlin quite early on at this Atonal Festival, which was just insane. I can't really describe how mad it was, but it was in the middle of winter in Berlin in this cold, falling down kind of place. And we were trying for the first time to sort of transfer what we did in the studio to the live setting, and it was a bit disastrous. But we did, after How You Doing, we we did start to do more gigs, funnily enough, and we, we were playing around, you know, here, here, festivals here, you know, we did a few tours abroad. We went, we went around New Zealand, Australia, the States, Europe. We we were, we were doing stuff. Still not really getting on very well. Um, we had other people in the in the band as well for the live shows. So we had a drummer, DJ, guitarist, percussionist, all really top people. You know, or, you know, very very good people that we knew, but people that were very good. And I had a kind of small studio on stage, and I'm basically remixing the tracks live while the musicians played into it and Gary sung. And it was quite a difficult thing, you know, because again, you didn't really have the equipment that you have now to kind of facilitate all of that. So things would crash all the time. The computers would crash. This would go wrong. That would go wrong. And for me, because I had to hold it all together, it was my stuff that could go wrong. You know, the guy with the, Rob with the guitar, well, he's got his guitar, he plays, he plays the guitar like he always, 
But for me, if one thing goes down, everything goes down, and we can't, and the whole thing falls apart, you know. So it was a quite a stressful, stressful experience. And um, plus, being on the road with the same people all the time, it, it does it can can sort of get to you, you know. But um, yeah, we 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 did quite a lot of that, and then we did the last album, which was um, next chapter of Dove, which was a kind of um, you know, reworking of the album before with some new stuff like we did with Vin Dub. And I think that's a really good album, you know. And most of that I just did with the engineer, you know, uh, and just because me and Gary weren't really getting on. So I wanted to do another dub album. And um, it's not to say he didn't have any input. He did, you know, but he had a big input on the How You Doing album. But the other one was was more me more me messing with the stuff that we we'd laid down on the previous album, you know. But, um, you know, when I say the previous album wasn't enjoyable, it's not that there weren't good ideas, you know. It was like like Gary. Gary was someone who would have, he had a certain way of, he had a certain kind of intelligence that was different from, from other people. And you either got with that or you didn't. And sometimes I was with it, sometimes I wasn't. And he probably felt the same about me. So I would try and bring some of his ideas to fruition. But sometimes... It didn't work out, you know, so we would clash and sometimes he won't understand what I was doing. But he did, uh, you know, he, he was a special kind of character. I mean, if you go back further to the first album and say Pocket Porn, Pocket Porn was his track, you know, and Pocket Porn dub, the version of that that was on in dub, I still play. I still play in down-tempo sets. I've got a radio show. I play that, you know, that that was one of our of all of all the tracks of ours. That's one of the ones that's kind of lasted the longest for me, you know. But um, yeah. But then it just just came to a point where it was like I don't want to do this anymore, and I just decided I'm I'm just not I'm just not going to carry on with this because it's just um, it's just stressing me out, you know. And um, yeah. So do you think like Renegade Soundwave? And do you find that you found did do you find your crowd? I think our crowd was very very confused, you know, because <laughs> I don't know what our crowd really was to this day. Like in America, it was one thing because in America you had this whole thing with the college radio stations. Uh, you probably know about all that, but they were so important. And the college radio stations were very eclectic. And it wasn't just for the colleges. Everybody would listen to them. So I loved that, you know, because they would play everything from Tribe Called Quest to The Prodigy to Nirvana to Joy Division, to Renegade Soundwave, to Public Enemy. You know, it was just quality alternative music. You, know, you might not like all of it, but it was there. And they played us a lot. So we had that kind of audience. And in the States, our audience was pretty much, I'd say, white college kids. You know, it wasn't, they didn't have a rave scene. The rave scene there came way, way later, you know. They, they just had gigs. So we would do gigs, you know. Um, I would DJ in clubs, but they didn't have the thing of, 10,000 people in a field or a warehouse. That they did later on, but not not at the time we were talking about. Whereas here, we had the indie kids that were into the vocal side of it, but more moreover, it was kind of the rave, the ravers, you know, the, the rave scene that were into the Phantom and stuff like that. And I think we just kept confusing people because people that were into one thing, we've released one record like Sound Clash, which didn't really 
people were expecting like 12 versions of the Phantom or something. They didn't get anything like that at all. Then the next thing would be a dub album. Then we go back to something different, something different. So I think we had a kind of, um, we had some people that were just into good music. Then we had some people from the rave scene, some from the indie scene, some from this, some from that, you know. Um, but I think we, we kind of stuck in people's minds, you know, they, they kind of liked us and, and it kind of, it kind of hit us. But I know that because I still kind of social media and I still DJ and stuff, you know, so I, I kind of, um, I still getting feedback from people that felt something at the time and kind of still feel it, you know, which is, which is great. You're listening to Radio Primavera Sound, proudly presented by Cupra. Cupra. 